Welcome again to the Irish Writers' Centre for the recording of this month's Irish Times Book Club podcast. I'm Martin Doyle from the Irish Times and our guest author this evening is Henrietta McCurvey. Welcome, Henrietta. Uh, Henrietta has an MFA in creative writing from UCD and as well as being a fiction writer, she works as an advertising copywriter. She won the Maeve Binchy Travel Award in 2014 and the Hennessy New Irish Writing First Fiction Prize in 2015. She has also published two novels in quick succession. The first, What Becomes of Us, came out last year and is set around the time of the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising. The Irish Times called it a thoughtful, poignant and insightful novel, identifying a hint of Maeve Binchy in her ability to tell a complex, entertaining story with intelligence and wit. Earlier this year, she published The Heart of Everything, this month's Irish Times book club title, which we've been exploring over the past four weeks. Henrietta, could you try and sum up for us what your book is about? Yes, it's about what happens when people go missing. And I mean missing in all sorts of different ways. There's the obvious way in that a woman walks out the door and doesn't come back, so she's physically missing. Um, But I was also interested in what happens when, as people age, they appear to go missing from society and they seem to sort of disappear and respect seems to be taken away from them. And also because the main character in the book, Mags Jensen, the woman who goes missing, is in the early stages of dementia, it's also about exploring what happens when memory starts to go missing because our memories are what define us and they're so important to what defines a family and constitutes a family, the idea of a collective memory, that when that begins to go missing, I think there's another interesting sort of gap that opens up. Mm -hmm. There's almost like a a terrible irony, the fact that, you know, you've got on on the one hand the torment of memory loss uh, with mags, but the rest of the characters, some more than others perhaps, are actually tormented by maybe too much an excess of memory, Um, particularly Anita, who has lost her son, but that's um, an event that has also uh, traumatised her sister. Um, Could you say something maybe about that, about how characters are are in people's, in real lives, people uh, deal with memory? Yes, um, I I found when I started thinking about the idea of memory and all that that entails was that it's the idea of forgetting is also what's really important you know and the characters in the book some of them are deliberately trying to forget something that has happened and then you have characters like Anita who won't let herself forget any aspect of it because for her to forget it, the fact that her son has died it's not a plot spoiler um but for her to n- not forget but in any way try and come to terms with that's happened to her feels like it would mean in some way, a negation of his life. So she won't allow herself forget anything, whereas the others are actively engaged in some way, you know, in trying to forget or sort of rewrite in their heads what has happened. And this is contrasted with Mags, who doesn't want to forget. You know, she's really railing against the idea that she will lose her memory because she understands how important memory is to a sense of self. Mm -hmm. And when I started writing the book, I mean, there's so many books that are about memories and, you know, things coming back to haunt us through memory or other people's memory. But I sort of, I think forgetting is that kind of mossy flip side to memory, you know, and it has its own special power, whether you don't realise you've forgotten something important or you're actively trying to forget something. Was it in this um, set of articles or was it somewhere else, something else that I published recently, but somebody actually spoke about her mother having a forgettery as a deliberate policy of these things, we will not talk of them again. 
Right. Um, I think no. that's from Winnie the Pooh. Is that I have a very good forgettery? <laughs> I think, yeah, I think some, that's where the word comes from, okay. I think. Yeah. I think everybody does that yeah. in life. There are some things you just choose to forget and, mm-hmm. and walk away from for various reasons. Um, and this is what some of the characters in the book have done. But if the thing is big enough, it'll come back and bite you. <laughs> Again, I guess I'm thinking that certainly in our society, we've been very good at kind of forgetting things or per- per choosing not to remember things as well, the kind of a denial of some things that have happened. So... Um, it, there is no simple solution as to how, how you handle um, difficult or traumatic things in the past, I guess. No, and none of them know how to do it either, and they've all made a mess of it in their own various ways. Like For me, a very clear theme that emerged uh, while reading uh, the novel was uh, the need for your characters, and by extension all of us, to pay more attention to the people in our lives, to be, to be present, to have regard as opposed to a casual disregard. That people don't have to disappear um, in physically for their essence to be missed. Um, you got the casual cruelty of Ray, who deliberately rings his mum just before Coronation Street is about to start, so he can curtail the conversation. Yeah. I used to um, do that to my granny. <laughs> yeah, I feel bad about it now. I mean, I used to ring her a lot, which makes me feel slightly better. But I would time it, think of either the news is coming on or Corrie's about to start. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think lots of people do that. What about that that sense then about um, like it seems to be like it's not heavy handed at all, but you know it it does seem to kind of um, crop up again and again the, the importance of of being there for people and for actually kind of bearing witness or, or actually just properly engaging with them as as human beings, knowing you know not just the color of their eyes but also actually you know, why they might be upset um, mm. or whatever. Yeah, I think Anita in the book is probably the biggest offender in this and she also thinks she is the best mm. as well because she is the one who, you know, is the most mindful of mags but in a very practical, it's time for the dentist, you know, have you done this? Mm. You know, I'll take you to the doctor, all of that stuff. But she's really no interest mm-hmm. in her life. She doesn't understand or care about her mm-hmm. day-to-day mm-hmm. life and... I mean, Mags she's is quite man- goofy. Her maybe yeah, more she sees her more as a problem, she, yeah. you know, that, that she needs to be solved or a series of, like, a checklist with, mm-hmm. a, a, you know, there's a series of things she has to, to tick off. Whereas Mags is actually quite goofy and wants to hang around talking about nonsense, like, mm-hmm. why have scones got so big in the last couple of years? They didn't used to be. You know, and just nonsense, which mm-hmm. is the stuff people enjoy chatting about. I think that's the currency of daily lives, is that stuff. I think that is where good, honest memories are made mm-hmm. is in that mm-hmm. stuff, not in the who brought you to the dentist. I just wonder, like, was that a starting point, maybe a pre-existing concern when you were writing the novel or did it maybe emerge as a kind of a side effect of the, the subject matter? Um, I think It was something that was in my head already because I noticed it myself um, when I first had a baby and you're pushing a pram down the road and it's like you've put on an invisibility cloak. You're, only other women pushing prams notice you. And they're actually just clocking what you're wearing and what your pram is like and how tired you look. And they're just, it's a very complex you know, algorithm they're working out. But you feel quite invisible. And I commented on this to my mother and she said, well, wait till you're older because that invisibility cloak just gets bigger and more encompassing. So that was in the back of my head that that was playing out, that as you age, people's expectations of you change you know and what they think you're good for you know, mm-hmm. what, what they think you're there for in their lives 
changes and generally not for the better, mm -hmm. which is what Mags is railing against. So I think I had that, that concern, which I just knitted into mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To her experience. Like one of the most poignant things I think in the novel is where they're, they're putting up posters um, off Mags and I think one of the children notices that somebody sort of glances within, doesn't really pay any attention because they perceive it's an old woman. So it's not kind of, I it's don't not know, an it's not front page news. It's not kind of the poignancy of maybe a, a teenage boy or girl gone missing or whatever. Yeah, that there um, is a certain it can be pigeonholed, carelessness perhaps. or casualness yeah. about it, about it being, oh dear, that poor old lady. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't feel mm -hmm. like an emergency for a lot mm -hmm. of people. Mm -hmm. What in fact was the genesis of the story? Like, where did the what was the the initial kernel or idea that it grew out of? The original thing was about people going missing. I've just this preoccupation about people who just disappear from their lives for. I mean, there's you know so many reasons. It can be don't all have to be you know tragic reasons. There are some people who choose to just leave and start again, or you know. But and just the the gap that mm -hmm. that leaves, mm -hmm. I think. And I thought Susan McKay in her article yeah. wrote really well about mm -hmm. it, that the idea disappeared. of the disappeared. Yeah, yeah that, that it opens up a hole that no matter what you try and fill it with or ever mm -hmm. how you try patch it, it's, you can yeah. never repair it. Well, there's not the same closure as there is if there's no body or whatever else, then there's, well, there may be a funeral, but there isn't the certainty or mm. the, the resolution. Yeah, and it, I think the word she used in her article, which I really like, was that it stunted people. And it does, you can see how you then just sort of bash up against something and you can't get past it. Um, so that idea of that missingness was something I'd been interested in for a long time. And I'd also, the, the walk, the Janet Cardiff piece, which you can do in London, um, which I've done a number of times, um, the missing voice, where you have, you know, you're listening, you have earphones and you're ostensibly following this missing woman who was just out of sight. She doesn't exist, obviously. You're just following something that Janet Cardiff has, has set up. Mm -hmm. But it's amazing. It is that idea. She's always just there. And if you can just turn the next corner or just get around these traffic lights, that you will find her, that you will solve this mystery. But you can't. The mystery mm -hmm. is only mm -hmm. in your head. Mm -hmm. Were there other novels? I'm trying to think of maybe A Child in Time by Ian McEwan. I don't know if you read that. No, um, I haven't. No. It's about a missing child. Um, were, are there other novels or fiction or non-fiction works that you had come across that maybe fed into even your imagination? Well, one I think that was sort of playing out very loosely in my head while I was writing parts of it was Rebecca. I know it doesn't seem like a natural mm. fit for it, but just that idea of the person who's off stage yeah. actually being really Incredibly important powerful, and driving right. mm -hmm. everything, mm. but they're not there mm -hmm. and you never meet them and you don't encounter them. And But the fact of their not being there is what is creating the novel. Now, mm -hmm. I know Mags doesn't exert that, that power <coughs> in the book, but that idea of the, what is happening in people's imaginations or in people's worries mm -hmm. about that person mm -hmm. is actually the book. Yeah. Of course, around the same time as, as, as your book came out, there was Anne Enright's book, which had some super, superficial similarities in that, um, again, a mother goes, goes missing and the disparate characters are kind of brought back from one from America, one from... Africa and one like from Dublin. Um, have you have you read that subsequently? Or? No, I mm -hmm. haven't. I thought I would leave a bit of distance yeah. but before because mm -hmm. when it came out and I, you know, and I heard there was similarity, it's about the mother going missing and I thought, mm -hmm. oh, I don't want to read it because mm -hmm. then I'll think, oh, that's really good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should have, I should have had mammy go missing like that or, <laughs> you know, something. So, no, I'll leave it a while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was just thinking as well, like, you know, the need to pay close attention uh, to what is going on it's also something that occurs to, to Raymond in a different light because he's a, a would-be 
screenwriter, if we could ever tear himself away from the pub. Um, I just wondered, as a writer, do you have to train yourself also to be always on the lookout for ways to describe things for people's quirks or turns of phrase, um, personality traits and flaws, psychological insights? Is that something, are you always on? I, are you on lot, right now? A lot of the time, <laughs> yes. I'm seeing note-taking here. Um, yeah, um, I, I don't always remember it is the thing, you know, mm. or sometimes you notice something or you hear something and you think, oh, that's absolutely brilliant, you know, and you go home and you write it down and then the following day you think it was a, I don't know, a nugget of gold and it turns out to be the wrapper on the dairy milk, you know, and you realise it was <laughs> rubbish. Um, but yeah, you have to be, I suppose I'm always aware of what's going on and I do write down things I hear. And, and you have to go I home see. to write it down. You don't carry a journal around with you. Something, no. Something moleskin. No, I don't. No, sometimes I send myself notes mm -hmm. on my phone, but mm -hmm. I also find I do forget things very easily. So it's sort of good training mm -hmm. to think, mm -hmm. no, just try carry it in your head. Mm -hmm. If it's good, <laughs> it lasts. Is that good, the idea? It, well, yeah. And is there also the thing where you're lying in bed at night and just before you go to sleep, you have really good ideas, a brilliant aperçu. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah. So wake I, up yeah. in the morning. Delete. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Again, the wrapper off a of dairy milk. <laughs> <laughs> Often. Yeah. So is that something that you've done since you became a writer or do you think it's something that you've always done? Like, do you think growing up, you know, you were someone who kind of noticed things, who kind of. I don't know if I noticed anything any more than anybody else would notice anything. Mm. But I was recording it all in my head in a way I, maybe everybody else does exactly the same thing. I don't know, I haven't asked, but only recently I was wondering, oh, do people actually, that in my head I was sort of writing it into sentences if mm -hmm. I noticed something or I was describing it mm -hmm. in a certain way and I would do mm -hmm. nothing with it. Mm -hmm. But I just realized the way the information was going in, it then got formatted <laughs> in a certain way. So I'm thinking like looking that. out the window and seeing a tree, would you think that tree reminds me of something, that sort of thing or? Um, yeah, yeah, maybe. It's probably more about people, actually, mm -hmm. I think, than things. If mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. saw a person thought, oh, that looks kind of like or what they're wearing, the way they're walking or something, I think. Or I the way think. that people talk and what they say and how they maybe don't notice how a person is reacting to what they're saying. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Um, how important is research for you as a writer? Um, I read a very interesting piece by Mark Billingham, the crime writer. Recently, he wrote for me about his, his new book. Um, and he said that, maybe counterintuitively, he did his research after he wrote the novel. So he didn't want it to get in the way of the novel, and he didn't want to waste time getting distracted by something terribly fascinating about forensic science or, or dead bodies. He wanted to kind of write the story that he wanted to write, and only afterwards would he go and actually fact-check to make sure that you know, the way that he described things was the way up in a police procedural oh, it would right. actually happen. Sounds like the opposite to Patricia Cornwell approach. Okay. Yeah. Um, what about yourself then? Like, you know, when you, like I think for your first novel, which was sort of set in 1966 around the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising, mm. but harking back obviously to 1916 and I think even before that. So did you have to, did you feel for your own comfort or whatever that you needed to kind of do the legwork up front? Yeah, I did quite a bit mm. of legwork up front because when I decided to write that book, it hadn't even occurred to me when I was thinking about it that I was giving myself three different periods to research. Mm. And I went, oh, three of them. Okay, this would be interesting. Um, so, I mean, it's coming, it was coming out of stuff I was interested in anyway, so I had some information mm -hmm. to go on, um, but I did have to go back and, and research. But generally, I use the material culture of the time 
as research. Mm -hmm. Because if you're describing a character's life as they're living it day by day, well, they have no hindsight. You know, mm -hmm. they, they don't have the third or fourth or fifth draft of history to work from. They just have what was in their newspaper that day or the leaflet or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I went back to those sort of sources um, for a lot of it, and which means characters get things wrong and misunderstand things, sure. and that's fine. And did you find yourself getting endlessly distracted and fascinated by shiny things that weren't of any use? Oh, yeah. Or were you very disciplined? Oh, no, the shiny things. Mm. There's a lot of very shiny things in old newspapers. Mm. The, the Help Wanted ads, I really like those. The situations mm. making, they're great. They're just some great jobs. Did any of them tempt you? Well, I probably would have replied to be a general, mm. which actually just meant to kind of maid. <laughs> it sounds great, but it was a sort of maid of all work, old general. That was great. Um, and the advertising of the time, I really enjoyed as well. Mm -hmm. There was a fantastic ad, which I came across when I was researching what becomes of us, um, for suffragettes. It was a, a tailor's who made clothes for suffragettes, the line being, because suffragettes in the public eye must always dress well. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. That reminds me, uh, was Leopold Bloom, was he a, an advertising copywriter or did he just sell advertising? Did he make, did he make them up? I don't know, or? actually. I can't remember. Hmm. Are, you saying you haven't, are you saying you haven't read Ulysses? I most certainly have not. <laughs> <laughs> Along with most other people. <laughs> Can I ask if there is, you know, you, you, you know your, your day job or one of your, your two jobs is um, advertising copywriting. Mm. Does that feed in any way into uh, your writing then? Is it just a facility with language perhaps or is, is there more to it than that? It's probably just about language. It can be kind of hampering, mm. I think. The, I don't think being a copywriter doesn't make you any better at writing fiction, but writing fiction makes you a better copywriter mm -hmm. because just, you know, copywriting is essentially about telling stories, whether it's the story of a product or, a, you know, an organisation or whatever, but it is a storytelling thing but it also has a lot of structures mm. to it there's a lot of little devices and tricks so it can be quite hard to weed those out when I'm writing fiction you mm -hmm, know that things mm -hmm. are in sets of three or you know not everything would need an adjective or you know whatever it might be so mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. the other way around certainly um, mm -hmm. fiction feeding into copywriting has mm -hmm, been very mm -hmm, useful mm -hmm. and that's not just a story you told your boss as you were finishing <laughs> your first draft <laughs> yeah yeah to explain why I've been doing nothing <laughs> How did you decide on the structure of your novel? Um, the chapters are quite long. Um, it's broken down by consecutive days with one flashback chapter in the middle and then hopping back to the first, or sorry, looping back. That sounds, mm. that sounds more, more positive um, <laughs> to the first day again yeah. at the end. Um, did you start out with that intention or is that just yeah. how it evolved? No, I knew it was going to be told in five days. At the beginning, I didn't know that one of those days would take place seven years before. Mm -hmm. That came about as I was writing it. Um, but I wanted it to be a very tight frame of time, partly because the previous book had a very wide expanse of time and I wanted to see what would happen if everything had to mm -hmm. sort of butt up quite you know, closely. But also because it's a missing person story and I think that urgency in order to keep that and capture that and have characters responding in panicked or stupid or unnecessary mm -hmm. or pointless or all of these things that people do that yeah. we all do in emergencies that it needed to fit within mm -hmm. quite mm -hmm. a tight mm -hmm. frame oh, time yeah. yes. otherwise that yeah. energy would disappear it would yeah mm -hmm. yeah and mm -hmm. of course also you know missing person in Dublin isn't that big if you have a rough idea where somebody is if mm -hmm. it plays out too long well, you find her <laughs> yeah. sure um 
What about then the the progression um, from from your first novel? Then was that something that you were very conscious of, maybe setting yourself a different challenge or um, approaching things differently with the experience uh, gained from writing the first and maybe the reception to the first? I'm not sure. Did you start writing this bef before? I had started this before the first one came out. In, mm -hmm. in fact, it was nearly finished, mm -hmm. or about you know, like three quarters finished anyway. Um, yeah, no, I wanted to do something quite different that had a different setting, you know, completely different people, and also that had a number of different voices, you know, and the told. I mean, the story is roughly <coughs> carved up pretty much equally between the four characters. Mm -hmm. um, and even though it's told in the third person of each of them, the idea is that you are you are getting their mm -hmm. authentic voice. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to try that, having done a book that was just focused really on two mm -hmm. characters. It's interesting. It sometimes still surprises me that I can sort of, you know, we do a summer fiction series in the paper every year and you can kind of ring up or email a writer and say, this year's theme is escape or war or whatever. Um, here's your deadline and here's a number of words. Off you go. Are you up for it? And the idea that they can respond to that and meet that challenge, you kind of think it almost kind of contradicts maybe uh, my romantic notion of the writer who follows only the muse and the idea that, you know, some upstart picks up the phone and, and gives them an idea or corrals them into a certain mm. space. Well, maybe it's the challenge is what people are responding to. Mm. Well, so I'm sure like the muse would give people loads of ideas and you just yeah. pick up on one or two because, mm. um, you know, they're not all going to be good. So. Yeah. They're also very creative at having lots of loose interpretations of whatever the theme is. <laughs> yeah. but. That's another subject. Um, I guess, again, I'm thinking um, like you won a, a Hennessy Short Story Award. Like people have said, the, the short story form itself, by its compression and, you know, its, its limitation can actually help in terms of um, concentrating um, your creativity into a, a very confined um, set of rules almost. Mm. Um, how did you find yourself the, the different challenges or satisfactions between writing a short story and, and writing your two novels? I prefer novels. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I struggle a lot with short stories, actually. Just the idea of being able to explore a number of different things in a novel and go off in different directions and then bring them all back somewhere at the end, I find more interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I think with a short story, I struggle with the idea of what are the elements you keep and what are the elements you don't keep? Yeah. You know, I think mm -hmm. that sort of cherry picking within the story mm -hmm. is, is quite difficult. Um, so I prefer just to be able to see where a number of different things can go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who, um, as a writer, um, would you like to emulate or phrase that whatever way you want in terms of, you know, what writers are your influences or what are the ones that, you know, you would have on a pedestal or whatever that, you know, you would aspire to touch the hem of their garment, whatever. Right. Well, different people for different things, I suppose. I mean, there's writers, I just love their work, like someone like Kate Atkinson. I think her writing is absolutely beautiful. I think she can just make language do whatever she wants it to do. It just dances around for mm -hmm. her, you know, I think that's wonderful. Someone like P.G. Woodhouse, who I would go back to regularly. <laughs> the work ethic, the just general joyfulness mm -hmm. about it all, I think that's wonderful. Um, I read, I would read and reread um, Evelyn Waugh quite a bit mm -hmm. as well, Evelyn Waugh, because there's, the black humour is amazing, you know, and never goes away. I think yeah. a book that you can go back to, I love rereading, and I think a book you can go back to and either find something new in it 
or be struck again by something that struck you the last time is always a keeper. Mm -hmm. so. Like there is, I wouldn't say it's a funny book by any means or whatever, like, but there definitely is a, a wry humor um, at work here. Like it's, it's obviously a sad story, a mother who, was, who goes missing, um, a dysfunctional family. And I was spoken jokingly, like, you know, is there ever such a thing as a functional family? Um, but um, there is a leaven of humor or sort of a, a you know, a wry sort of a, a approach to uh, the foibles of life, if you like, through it. And I noticed from a quest question and answer thing that you did, for me that um, a lot of the writers that you like um, are, you mentioned Woodhouse, but also David Lodge, an mm -hmm. influence I know as much for, um, you know, his academic writing about the, the art of fiction, but he's also a very funny mm -hmm. uh, very, writer. Yeah. Um, and Eddie Braben, Braben um, the, the, the Morkman Wise writer. Yeah. Like that to me suggests that, you know, you, you definitely have um, a thing about humour to actually know the name of the scriptwriter, yeah. not just to be a I fan have his autobiography of. as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, that's amazing writing. When mm -hmm. you look at things like Markham and Wise script writing and the time pressure that they were under to produce it, and it's pin sharp. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely beautiful, I think, to be able to write like that. Writing comedy is really hard. Mm -hmm. Funny lines are very difficult to do. I mean, so much writing is actually quite dour, you know, and sometimes I wonder, is that because writing funny is much harder <laughs> mm. than writing dour a lot of the time? I guess um, if a line is meant to be funny and it's not funny, then it's nothing, whereas mm. other things can drive the plot forward or make an observation or whatever. So do you kind of need a second opinion maybe more for you know what you think is funny or whatever? Or would you you know, have supreme confidence in your... I would have supreme confidence in my ability to nick other funny things people have said to me. Okay. Yeah, some of them are okay. here. I'm looking at you, Michael. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if I hear something funny, I think, oh, I'll have that. Okay, you so know, you know that they, they, yeah. they've worked in real life. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Yeah, I think funny often needs a bit of road testing, mm -hmm. really. So, yeah. Um, you were born in Belfast. I think there's still a vague hint of... What, what age were you when you moved down? We moved to Cork when I was seven. Okay. Yeah. And then Dublin? No, we were in Cork for quite a while and various other little jaunts places um and my family moved back to belfast but i moved to dublin okay yeah as a as an adult as an adult to go to, to yeah. university yeah. or whatever yeah okay do you think that qualifies you as an outsider which seems to be sometimes a prerequisite for uh, for the fiction writer well it certainly always felt like it i mean i've never had the right accent for anywhere i've lived mm. it's always <laughs> been an accent behind or an accent mm. ahead or just elocution lesson accent i don't know so yeah i definitely always Mm -hmm. I had a, a, a little sense of that, yeah. And maybe the sense of, you know, starting in a new place, well then it is new and therefore maybe you're taking it in a little bit more than if you're born and, and bred in a place, it just becomes... Yeah, you have to work a bit harder to mm. learn the rules that nobody's telling you. Mm -hmm. I, I went to school in Boston for a little while when I was, um, I would have been in first year in secondary school, so I was in, I think it was seventh grade. And it was a sort of school I'd never been to going from a school in Ireland, so, well, it was mixed for mm -hmm. a start, there was, you did woodwork and metalwork and, you know, subjects I'd never even heard of. And I couldn't understand the timetable. Mm. And it didn't occur to anybody to explain. I wasn't even used to having a timetable that alternated week on week. Mm -hmm. And I was always in the wrong room for about a month. I never seemed to be able to get it right. It, nobody else, you know, it, it occurred to them to tell me what it was. And I just always, I think, had various levels of that mm -hmm. feeling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um. I don't know where to go with this then, but I just sort of jotted this down uh, towards the end. Um, 
there's a sense um, in Irish Nudrutna kind of touches on it in her, her review in the Irish Times. There's a sense in your work that there's a kind of an accessibility, but still at the same time, a lot of substance. Um, like there are a lot of ideas in it and there are a lot of, you know, pretty acute observations about how people are, how they interact and how they say one thing and maybe um, um, do another or what have you. Um, could you say something about that? It's kind of, it's almost awkward territory really, like even to kind of to quote um, um, the, the review there from your first book, in the, again in the Irish Times, you know, mentioning Mia Binchy, like for some people that wouldn't be praise. Mm. And I know um, for yourself, there's, there's actually a reference in, in your book to um, um, Mia Binchy actually being yeah. on the, the Leaving yeah. Cert curriculum, whereas um, the, the sister remembers as a child, that was something that you would sort of, you know, swap um, mm. for fun um, during class if the teacher's back was turned. Can you say something about, you know, you know, how maybe um, maybe it's, it's something that um, applies or is addressed more to female writers than, than male ones, that kind of, there's almost like a hierarchy in fiction as to what is popular, what is um, accessible, what is kind of literary fiction? Yeah, well, I suppose this <clears throat> kind of feeds into that thing. If a you know a woman writes a book about a family, it's a domestic drama, and if a man writes it, it's the human condition writ large. Mm. You know, I, I think there's definitely a bit of that goes on. Um, I think it's flattering to be compared to anybody who's a fantastic storyteller. Mm -hmm. So I I liked the comparison to May Binch. I think she's fantastic at telling stories, mm -hmm. and I always loved her journalism. Even as a child, I remember reading it in the Irish Times. It was just fantastic. Um, so I. The comment, what you're talking about, the simple language, mm. I think that's one of those things when you start writing and you feel you have to sort of burden the page mm -hmm. with a lot of yeah. words, yeah. you know, and it can be sure quite a learning. lot of work. Yeah, there yeah. is a little bit of like you're just carrying all this in your head on a bowl and you need to dump it onto the page. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it takes, I think, quite a lot of work to realise that when you take it all away. So possibly the copywriting mm -hmm. training came in quite useful for that. I'm quite used to people taking a red biro out to my work and crossing bits out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so when you actually start to pare it away and it does get simpler, yeah. it doesn't mean it's not complex. It can still be a complex idea, sure. but I think if you can keep the language, mm -hmm. it's being expressed in simple, then it's easier for people to understand. Mentioning there the red barrow through your, through your work as a copywriter reminds me that um, you did uh, MFA in creative, creative writing mm. at UCD. I think I remember you saying, you, one of the first drafts that you showed to Eilish Nudrivna, um, and it came back with lots of compliments, but yeah. also with a red line I through had sweated your, over that chapter. your first page. Yeah, that was, you know, that was the best first chapter of any book anybody has ever written, in my opinion. <laughs> that was just, and what I really needed was somebody to give me a pack of Smarties and a medal and send me home. Mm -hmm. And she gave it back to me and there was a line drawn <laughs> through the entire first page. Mm. Not even individual <laughs> words aligned through the entire page. And I went, thank you very much. Did it actually break through the paper? <laughs> yeah. Had force so, been applied? I mean, yeah, yeah, with the darts. <laughs> um, so I have the page. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I refer to it quite regularly when I think, oh, now am I overdoing it here? Does this word need to be? Or I think, okay, remember the page. See if they're just framed. You. No, I have it. The print, yeah, I have it printed out. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. on my desk. All righty. Um, maybe would you like to read an extract from uh, sure. the book? Yeah. Thanks. Okay, this bit is a bit involving Raymond. I really like Raymond. 
one of my favourite characters in it. If Anna Batchik disagrees, mm. then if you read her article, she's the Anita fan. Um, in this piece, Raymond has ended up in a pub because he was in the Garda station with his sisters, which is not a happy place for him to be. There was a big bust up, so he just walked out. So this is him now. He's found a local pub. and The first pint didn't even touch the sides. The second, more so. By the third, he could feel himself calming down. His angry gulping gave way to the slower, easier sipping of a nearly sated baby on a bottle. He looks around, Nolan's. The pub was shadowy dark when he first walked in, and the shift from the glare outside into its gloomy, cigarette-butt-strewn lobby made him dizzy. A soundless wall-mounted TV is tuned to Eurosport, to the International Giant Competition 2014. Men with shaved heads that sit ridiculously small on their mountainous bodies are hauling tyres around a field somewhere in the arse end of Poland. At this end of the bar, he is only a discarded racing post and the fatty meat smell coming from the carvery for company. Through an open door to a kitchen, he can hear a man's voice whining on a radio phone-in, though his words are muffled by the music coming from a speaker over the bar. He remembers this place as the hole in the wall, a dingy local, whose undiscerning owner sold the village teenagers pissy pints of Furstenberg and Foster's until they vomited them back up into his grubby toilets. He looks around, trying to remember the room as it once was. Lager never did suit him, and what was once the men's, where so many of his nights in the hole regularly came to a sorry heaving end, is now an unroofed smoking area. Anita and Ellen will have come to blows by now, he thinks, just as well they were already at a Garda station. Sergeant Corrish will have drafted in the army peacekeepers. He imagines her tucking Ellen under her long arm and spiriting her out of the room. Easy done, she's so slight. Anita would need a bit more heft. Raymond straightens the beer mat and puts his glass back down. He had been trying his best. He really had. He had stayed calm. But they'd forced him away, sure as if they'd booted him out the door, tugging at him like he was the last fucking Christmas cracker in the box. He sinks a good third of the pint. Nolan's isn't so bad. Now he's had a proper chance to look around. Standard issue suburban boozer. It's a decent pint of Guinness, though. He has to give them that. Just the right temperature. Whoever Nolan is, he keeps his lines clean. Anyway, right now, if it was a choice between drinking in a toilet or being with his sisters, he'd take his chances in the jacks. He runs the scene in the Garda station over in his mind and confirms with himself that, yes, he's in the clear. He was doing what he could so that his sisters didn't have to speak directly to each other, but that just wasn't enough. No, they had left him no choice. Raymond should have known better. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> just one last question before I throw it open to the floor, throw you to the wolves. <laughs> um, we're talking there about you uh, doing the, the MFA. Can you tell us a, a little bit about how that works and how it worked for you? Yes, I hadn't intended originally to do a course like that. I did um, a Faber writing a novel course the year before, which I found really good, and then decided to apply for the MFA without. I wasn't really sure what I was expecting to happen in it. I knew it was small groups and there was tutorials, and um, I suppose I wasn't expecting the access to Lots of other different things. I got to do a folklore 
course and a short story course and you know there was loads of different areas that sort of opened up as a result and Frank McGuinness teaches a Jane Austen course on it which is really really interesting um, and the just meeting other people other writers like James Ryan and Alison Grivna and Carlo Gebler and just having being able to chat to these people about books and reading and writing and mm -hmm. was all fascinating you know I mean I don't I'm not saying I think everybody every writer should go do a course like this, I know there's a huge debate about are creative writing courses valuable at all and how do they matter, but I think if you want to learn craft and technique, then yeah. I mean, if you could play the violin, nobody would say, don't go do a violin class. So, Did it, as, did it improve you as a writer? Did it change you as a writer? I think yes, it improved me and yes, it changed me. Yeah, I think the discipline of having to explain what you're doing to other people has to improve you mm -hmm. because you are getting comments back and if you choose to listen to them, then yes, it's only ever going to, to make you better. I mean, I'm quite disciplined anyway in terms of the work, mm -hmm. but just that having to explain it to other people rather than it just being something that's that's rattling around in your head, mm -hmm. you know, which is why I think something like a book club is fantastic, um, that people just get to articulate how they feel about books. It's such a private, reading is such a private thing. It's an act of your own imagination, no matter what the book is, it all takes place in your own head. Mm -hmm. So the idea of having a place, whether it's a book club or a creative writing course, where you get to articulate all mm -hmm. these things is fantastic. That reminds me actually that you said that, um, it was an interesting idea of yours that you wanted to write one last piece um, sort of as a wrap uh, to the month of the book club, mm. which is kind of reflecting on what you've learned from the experience, what you know, you've learned from reading other people's thoughts about your book, and maybe how you might do it all differently if you had your time again, mm. having taken all that on board. Could you give us a sneak preview of um, your thoughts? Um, well, there's not. The main thing I think I would do differently was I was always really surprised when people keep referring to Raymond as an alcoholic. Yeah, I thought that probably, was harsh. Yeah, I was thinking, really? Is that alcohol? Oh dear. So I would probably moderate <laughs> his drinking a little enough so that people wouldn't be worried. Because I didn't want him to think he was making decisions. Own, huh? or, yeah, or my own, possibly both. Um, I, in case people were thinking he was making decisions based on the fact he was an alcoholic, whereas he's making decisions based on the fact he's an Egypt, mm. you know, which is a different, obviously, completely different thing. Um, but it has been really interesting just that having people discuss various aspects of the book in depth because mm -hmm. as I say so much of this happens even after a book comes out you know you get people saying I really enjoyed it or I liked it or in the case of one of my uncles it's better than the last one <laughs> <laughs> so you get these sort of comments but to actually get something that really digs quite deeply mm -hmm. into one particular aspect yeah. I think is, is very valuable okay yeah. look forward to reading his quote on the back page <laughs> of the paperback <laughs> Okay, um, thanks very much. Um, thanks all for coming to the Irish Times Book Club here at the Irish Writer Centre. And thanks in particular to Henrietta for contributing throughout the month and particularly tonight and JJ for doing the sound. Yeah. Uh, next month um, will be uh, Joanna Wallace's Vertigo. So look forward to reading that. Okay, um, thank you very much.